And I think it's another topic that's going to be discussed quite a lot that's in Europe. You know, it's what do we want to give to audiences? You know, what they want to experience and how do we make sure that we have something out there for everyone, not just in terms of content, but in terms of the experience itself. Uh, and, you know, some of, you know, the audiences, it will be all about, oh, I want the biggest screen and I want the loudest sound and I want to have, you know, the biggest, you know, kind of popcorn or whatever. But then for other people, it'd be very different. They want to have a cozy atmosphere. They want to have a very comfortable seat. They want to have a glass of wine. And I think we just need, you know, to make sure that basically all the diversity of cinemas that we have across Europe, which we're very proud of, basically can continue again to serve absolutely everyone. Hello and welcome to the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition for over a century. Today's episode is the first in our three-part Cine Europe series sponsored by Ice Theatres and Christie. If you're a regular listener of this podcast and you are at Cine Europe in Barcelona, you might recognize the dulcet tones of our podcast co-host Russ Fisher from uh, across the convention center. He is there representing Box Office Pro and Box Office Podcast, and we'll hear from him uh, later on in this three-episode series. But yeah, you see him, go up to him, say hi, ask him about Dune. For today's episode, we have uh, myself, Box Office Analyst Jesse Rifkin and Chief Analyst Sean Robbins, who are going to break down the box office potential of a really crowded upcoming weekend in terms of the movie slate, which is something I have not said uh, in years. Later on in the episode, we'll be hearing from Laura Hulgott of Unique and Phil Clapp of Unique and the UKCA to discuss the state of the European cinema sector and to give us a little preview of what you'll be seeing from Cine Europe. All this and a breakdown of Transformers Rise of the Beasts opening weekend box office after this message from one of the sponsors of our 2023 Cine Europe podcast series, Ice Theatres. Ice Theatres, the market's most immersive and high-end premium format. Because the light shall be treated like sound coming from everywhere. Discover the Ice Theatres experience and embark on an immersive odyssey beyond reality. Ice Theatres, meet us at Cine Europe, booth 107. And we are back. Sean and Jesse, I'm very excited to bounce all sorts of numbers-related questions at you. Uh, first off, did you see anything over the weekend? I did not, unfortunately. I'm hoping to catch a screening at some point this week, but we'll see what happens. Yes, I went to see Past Lives, the new uh, romantic drama from A24 on Friday night before my usual piano bar performing gig. Um, quite the opposite of Transformers Rise of the Beast. Before we get into the upcoming weekend, let's real quick go over what we saw last weekend from Transformers Rise of the Beasts. I know we came in kind of, uh, Jesse, above studios' pre-release expectations, really above, above the range we predicted as well. What were we looking at in terms of that debut? Well, what we were projecting was somewhere between about a 46 to $56 million opening weekend. It did better than even the top end of that range. At just over 60, we're talking 60.5 million, opening several million dollars above even what the most optimistic projections were here. 
Internationally, we got uh, $110 million from 68 markets, top markets being uh, China, Mexico, Indonesia, Peru, and South Korea. Something that's interesting that uh, we got this information from Paramount. Could you go over the demographics a little bit of what opening weekend looked like, Jesse? Uh, one of the most interesting statistics from the audience demographics is that Latino audiences made up 32% of the opening weekend. That's actually 1% higher than white audiences, which made up 31%. Uh, also, we're talking a 62% male to 38% female opening weekend breakdown. Sean, do you have any sense of, of what the drop might be on this, taking into account that it is going to be losing those premium screens next week? Yeah, I think we obviously we start by looking at the last Transformers movies and, and they tend to have sharper declines. And, and we're kind of at a point now where this is the first post-pandemic Transformers release. And we look at that exactly what you're talking about. There is going to be a drop in the premium screen space. The Flash will be taking over a big portion of that. So will Elemental Love be getting a few screens as well. And this is just a naturally front-loaded franchise. So considering last weekend also included Wednesday's previews and essentially was about a three and a half to four day opening, it's very easy to see a drop close to, if not greater than 60%. That might even be a little conservative. I think the positive side is this seems to have fairly solid word of mouth among especially Transformers fans because it's it's based on one of the most popular storylines from the 90s. So that might be a factor, especially with kind of how I think diverse the marketplace is now. We, we really saw Transformers slightly overperforming even while Spider-Verse is still doing really well. So that proves that multiple films can coexist right now. It's great. And Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse dropped 54% in its second weekend. It has now officially surpassed its predecessor, Spider-Man, into the Spider-Verse's entire domestic total after less than two weeks. This weekend, we have three films hitting in wide release and one coming out in limited release, that being Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, which is only coming out in six theaters. Let's start with The Flash. I mean, we've been kind of talking about this one and building up to this one since before the pandemic at this point, right? I mean, this is this feels pretty huge that we're finally seeing this movie. Yeah, it's it's been a long time in the making, even years before the pandemic. It was it was a lot of fits and starts just to get this character on the big screen. So it's impossible to talk about this movie without mentioning Ezra Miller. And they've been involved with a lot of controversies over the last few years. So I think that's really probably playing into the impact of interest in this movie. But it's not that element alone. It's also just the fact that the DC franchise is, is very out of sorts, let's say, to put it nicely. And the, its fans are well aware that James Gunn is overseeing a massive reboot. And everybody else who doesn't follow that aspect of the industry and that aspect of comic book movies is just generally confused about the state of these movies and the timelines. Maybe not unlike, not unlike where X-Men was about 10 years ago, to be quite honest. So yeah, I think we definitely had a lot more bullish expectations months in advance of this, but the pre-sales are decent, but not mind-blowing. Hopefully that picks up throughout the week. We'll see what happens because industry reviews were pretty, you know, pretty solid, I think, over the last few months. But I think it's kind of getting to the point where instead of a potential 100 million plus opening that you might expect for a movie featuring Michael Keaton's return as Batman, we're, we're now probably looking under that, maybe maybe even as low as 70 million. But it's it's very volatile at this point. Wow, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll keep everyone updated on boxofficepro.com as those numbers come in. Definitely a, a big one for Warner Brothers. Then from Disney, Pixar, we have Elemental uh, also coming out, which is, I mean, if people are feeling a little bit fatigued by the DCU and kind of a little bit over it, Elemental is original IP. 
do you think like there's crossover audience or are those two going to cannibalize each other? Do you I think, think there, there probably isn't too much cannibalization. Elemental seems it will probably have a stronger lean to female audiences. Pixar films often do with the exception of, of things like Incredibles. The Flash is going to play very male heavy, probably over 60% of its audience, just like Transformers did this past weekend with 62% versus only 38% female share. That's probably going to happen for The Flash elemental is making that play for families and now the probably its bigger concern is is spider-verse and honestly little mermaid at this point because we've seen it continue to do well in its holdover weeks and that of course is very female driven so pixar is you know as you mentioned it's it's an original ip here that's probably a an automatic knock to you know comparing it to anything that they've done recently because lightyear even though it disappointed last year, was still a franchise title. Other films pre-pandemic were major blockbusters, but they were also big sequels. So it'll be fascinating, I think, to watch this one. And Elemental, I, I kind of view more about the long game than the opening weekend at this stage. And Jesse, can you give us kind of a, a recap and overview of what the box office or lack of box office has been for Pixar these last few years? Because once it was just, you know, the, the top of the pile artistically, creatively, box office. And uh, yeah, it's kind of slid down a bit in the last few years. I mean, Pixar sort of seeded the animation box office crown recently to illumination between last year's highest grossing animated movie, which was uh, Minions, The Rise of Gru, and what's almost certain to be this year's highest, which is Super Mario Brothers movie. So yeah, I mean, three of Pixar's last four feature films made the astonishing total of zero dollars. Because we're talking Soul, then Luca, then Turning Red three straight films that they released straight to Disney+. Plus. Then they released Lightyear back to theaters again, and that was their lowest grossing movie ever in theaters. I mean, we're talking, it made less than some of their movies from the 90s, and that's not adjusting for inflation. That's in, that's in pure dollars. Technically isn't, because there was Onward that was right before the, everything shut down. So it like, you know, that's that's a little, the little asterisk. It's kind of, technically it has a lower box office, but not its fault. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but, it also, but also at one week in theaters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And even its opening weekend, it, maybe it was slightly impacted by kind of the growing fears of COVID, but not significantly so, I think, just looking by the marketplace at the time. So even Onward kind of opened at a point where it started to suggest that Pixar was at a stage where maybe some of their original films weren't going to draw like they used to because that generation has really evolved. I mean, I'm part of the older millennial generation. We grew up on Pixar movies, and, and just like Jesse just mentioned, that's shifted to illumination now for Gen Z and younger. All right. Well, we actually have a, one other wide release here in the blackening from Lionsgate. I imagine that it's going to be playing on fewer screens uh, than both uh, Elemental and The Flash, which it's definitely not going to get any of those premium screens. I would have, like, what do you, do you have any idea or prediction, Sean, for like, what's the balance going to be on premium screens for Flash versus Elemental? Very rough. I think we'll, we'll get a little bit better as theaters start allocating more showtimes throughout the week, because what we've actually seen in probably the last month or two is more of these titles compete for the space, unless there is a specific studio contract locked up, say for something like Oppenheimer next month. They sometimes have flexibility at the last second to adjust based on demand. So I think that might end up happening this week because of the Flash and Transformers and Elemental. Uh, but you're absolutely right. The blackening will probably not be getting many of the screens. So that one, it's a, it's a genre that has, you know, historically over the last few years been doing really well, the horror genre. That said, just a few weeks back, we had The Boogeyman from 20th Century Studios, which like it didn't do terrible, right? But it wasn't like 
great. Yeah, and it's it's kind of been interesting because horror has been such a a cornerstone of of box office since since we rebounded from the pandemic, and this the summer so far hasn't had that big summer hit in that in that genre in terms of you know just breaking out like something like Megan or even Evil Dead Rise. The Blackening maybe had some potential like that, but Lionsgate is, is releasing it at 1,800 theaters this weekend, about almost just half of what we would normally expect for a major studio release. But it is well-timed. It's it's a horror comedy. It's an hour and a half long. It's coming on Juneteenth weekend with that holiday landing on Monday. So I think there is some upside there, and it certainly could be serving an, an underserved audience as a counter-programmer against The Flash and Elemental. This is really the kind of movie that doesn't have a, a specific audience going to see anything at the moment. Uh, that's actually something that uh, Laura Hogarth talks about in the feature episode that you'll be hearing in a few minutes. Just the need for films for any type of audience, diverse groups of audience. We have elemental kind of skews more female, the flash skews more young male, like blackening is reaching out to African-American audiences. We also have Asteroid City, the newest from Wes Anderson, which I guess they're this marketing towards the quirky film nerds of the world. And a new Wes Anderson is coming out. Always so good for our Always houses. a celebration for not just his fans, but art house theaters. And it really rounds out like, I mean, it's perfect. We haven't even really mentioned this is Father's Day weekend. That's why we see all these movies courting different audiences, because you never know. I mean, some fathers might want to take their sons or maybe their daughters or there's just all kinds of family dynamics in play. So it's good to have this this variety of content. And a Wes Anderson movie is, is certainly going to appeal to a lot of the older film nerd dads out there. And it's he's typically very reliable, especially in these platform openings, six locations. It looks like it'll be opening, which when Grand Budapest Hotel opened back in 2014, it was you know around 900,000 800,000 I believe for its opening weekend at four locations so something like that probably even higher seems reasonable for asteroid city especially with the buzz that it's it's receiving uh, Sean before we move on to our feature here i i want to ask you so many films coming out this weekend i know it's fathers day so it's an anomaly like this isn't going to be the case every weekend it's something that we've been asking for for literal years now at this point can you give us like a top level view the rest of the summer? I mean, are we going to be seeing this kind of, you know, films competing against each other every week? Is it is it at all? Are you wary of it in terms of box office? I think overall the the healthy state of, of the summer is kind of playing out because I think really, especially my expectation going in was that a lot of these movies could just end up making close to a similar amount of money. There wasn't one that stood above the rest as here's your obvious winner of summer you know, maybe it makes five or 600 million. We, we had that. It was Mario two months ago. But everything else is, nor, is now more balanced because the absence of something like Top Gun last summer made it a very top-heavy season. Now we're, we're looking at Guardians and Spider-Verse opening to very similar numbers. The Little Mermaid, not too far off from that. The Flash will be around that. So looking ahead, I, I think you know, Indiana Jones, a lot to talk about there, which we'll get to in a, pro- a couple of weeks. But Mission Impossible... Oppenheimer, Barbie, these are all movies that have a lot of potential on paper. And and really, especially looking ahead to that Oppenheimer Barbie weekend, that's almost the microcosm of this entire season because it's it seems to be all anybody wants to talk about, which one's going to be number one. And that that to me that really kind of sums up how this how this summer looks. Right. And it is that uh, the flash elemental dichotomy of yeah. female marketed movie, female marketed <laughs> exactly. movie. I don't know. I'm seeing Yeah, both. same here. Like I'm planning, I've got my Thursday tickets for Oppenheimer. I'm going to see Barbie probably on Saturday with my wife. So it's it's one of those weekends I think a lot of people go see two movies. 
Jesse and Sean, thanks so much for joining us today, sharing your insight. We're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors for the Cine Europe box office podcast series, Christy. And then we will return with that interview with Phil Clapp and Laura Holgott to hear about how Cine Europe is going to be shaking out. What does it take to create the technology behind cinema magic? If you look at Cannes, BFI, other shows that are considered the best of the best, you'll find Christie in every projection booth. The reason for that is the quality and passion they put into their products. This is cinema equipment built by cinema enthusiasts. It's technology that loves cinema. If you want to know more about how they're advancing the future of cinema or modernizing traditional Xenon systems, check them out at CineEurope.com. MR134 or online at christydigital.com forward slash cinema. Phil and Laura, it's uh, it's really great to speak to you in advance of this year's uh, Cine Europe. I want to kind of set the stage by looking at a kind of a more backwards-leaning question. Unique earlier in the year release data kind of setting the stage for how much the general European cinema industry improved, I guess, uh, you know, in terms of admissions and in terms of box office between 2021 and 2022. I believe it was 56% for box office, around like a little under 40 for admissions. Have you gotten more data in that would give you some more clarity on those numbers? Is it still roughly kind of that same amount as what we were looking at? So for 2022, we are roughly looking at the same amount. I would just add that for the box office, if you look at EU plus UK put together, it's an increase of 71% because, of course, the impact of the war on Russia and Ukraine have brought the numbers down. And let's just say that for Q1 2023, we've done even better. We're looking at very positive figures across the board in a number of territories. So just to give you a couple of examples, France in April 2023 was 2% above in terms of admissions compared to the average of 2017-2019. The Netherlands and Austria were plus 2% box office-wise, again, over the average of 2017-2019. Norway was also just above, and now we've even received some data for April and May. So Belgium is just minus 3% in terms of box office, compared to the average of 2017-2019. And Spain, which was, you know, Tracking behind, uh, it's fair to say, in 2022, if you look at May, we're now back to the box office numbers of 2017-2019. Nice. Phil, how are, how are the UK and Ireland looking? Inevitably, when you look at percentage increases, you know, it's all, it's all relative to the, you know, kind of the same time the year before. So, so, so sometimes, you know, numbers that look on the face of it, you know, kind of lesser are just a reflect of the fact of a strong previous year and for us that's very much the case you know both for UK and Ireland I think I think we're we're broadly tracking in line with the kind of first quarter of 2022 in the first quarter of 2023 I think it's fair to say that our what you might call our award season films didn't really hit with audiences this year in the way they did last year but we're you know we're clearly as is everyone else in terms of the major US studio content looking forward to the coming weeks and months of, you know, major titles being released almost on a weekly basis. So I'm sure we'll, we'll soon, you know, kind of pick up momentum and exceed those. So, you know, absolutely a positive number, but maybe not the type of increases year on year, which Laura's talked about in one or two other European territories. Yeah. 2019 was a record year. I feel like that's 
that's an unreasonable expectation. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, it, it's a nuance which often, you know, kind of slips past the mainstream media. You know, they automatically take 2019 as, as the bar we need to reach. And we need to remember, even in pre-COVID times, 2019 was an exceptional bar, as it were. We're seeing that some markets within the EU are definitely taking longer to recover. You mentioned Spain, which is starting to rev up. Obviously, the horrible situation with Ukraine, which is completely you know, caused by factors outside of the industry. Uh, what about those other outliers? How uh, How is Italy doing? What are the markets that are taking a bit longer to recover? So, I mean, you mentioned one of them. I mean, indeed, Italy, uh, it's been much more challenging for them to recover, especially if you look at the numbers for 2022. It's fair to say and to remind people that Italy was under very strong restrictions until June 2022. And after that, you have, of course, the summer, where we always, always had a challenge in terms of new releases in Italy. So, you know, it was for them really challenging to get back to, as you mentioned, the figures of 2019. Spain was also, you know, tracking behind. But again, as mentioned, Q1 has been much better. We have territories like Poland, where things have been slightly slower. And in that case, again, you won't get a one-size-fits-all answer. For Poland, one of the issues is the lack of local content and of strong local content, because it's a territory which for a long time had been relying on a very strong tier of local films, including action movies and comedies and things like that. And there's been a lack of these over the past year, but also over the first quarter of the year for 2023, for example. I would just add to that is that, you know, quite often, and I'm sure this is particularly true, perhaps for kind of US domestic colleagues looking in, they see the the recovery of the, the US major studio slate, and, you know, kind of probably scratch their heads as to why some of the territories you mentioned haven't yet caught up, you know, quite aside from the issue of restrictions, a number of the territories that have probably, you know, kind of still got some ground to make are those where pre-COVID, as Laura said, the domestic film slate was incredibly strong. And, you know, we know that, you know, just in general terms, independent film production was, you know, as bad as the issues were for major studio production. Independent film production was hit even more acutely. And so it's it's understandable that that missing bit of the jigsaw, as it were, is just taking a little bit longer to put into place. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, Local, those local films, I mean, from depending on the different countries, were so important to the recovery of a lot of these industries. It was, you know, you could get people to discover these films and then come to the cinema and see films that maybe they otherwise would not have seen. I know uh, National Cinema Day was a, a big driver for that here in the US and then in a lot of you know, European markets as well with their own cinema days. I want to ask you a little bit about that, about how it did in, in the UK and Ireland, where I know it was the first time versus, you know, in other markets like France, obviously something like National Cinema Day is like well-established. So yeah, how did it shake out in the UK and Ireland? So for the UK and Ireland, I mean, you know, in the mists of time back in the late 1990s, we had run National Cinema Days. And really those were then kind of superseded by a number of kind of week in, week out discounts, etc., but I think as we came into 2022 and as we looked at the momentum of the recovery, it was just decided and it was not unrelated to the fact that there was a, a props, you know, kind of a challenge around the, the amount of films being released in kind of August and September of last year, which thankfully we don't have to anything like the same degree this year. Just it was a feeling feel, feel that the market needed an additional boost and certainly the experience of our National Cinema Day in the UK, which coincidentally was the same day as the US National Cinema Day, so the 3rd of September, 
was a very, very positive one. You know, yes, we can look at the numbers, you know, 1.46 million admissions, something like three times the number of people we'd ordinarily see at that weekend in a pre-COVID time. And also, you know, the biggest day for people returning back to cinema for the first time since COVID, which I think was a common theme for many of those territories, which reintroduced National Cinema Day for the first time after maybe, you know, a long pause. But actually, you know, quite aside from the numbers, I think it was around the buzz that came for around cinema going. We got a lot of profiles. I, I know dear colleagues in other European territories on mainstream media, you know, able to shine a light on the recovery of the sector, able to, you know, kind of put the upcoming film slate in the shop window. And also, you know, to be honest, to remind people perhaps, you know, maybe what they were missing in terms of the modern cinema-going experience. It was very notable that unprompted a number of our members in the UK came back to us and said that, you know, customers had said they'd actually, it's not that they'd not been back to the cinema since COVID. They'd probably not been back for a couple of decades. And now it was, a, you know, it is clearly, and we would clearly expect it, a very, very different experience than they saw previously. So, you know, without prejudging how other territories might react. My knowledge is that the UK will certainly run this again in 2023. And I strongly suspect, you know, talking to other European colleagues who have a similar experience, that most territories will look to run something similar. The challenges around dating, to be honest. There are actual films on the There there are actual living (laughs) films out there. I mean, you know, we absolutely understand that, you know, colleagues in the studios are nervous about their films as it were being the kind of sacrificial lamb of discounting. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm confident, and certainly in the UK, I'm confident we can find a date that works that works for everyone. And we're really standing on the shoulders, as you mentioned at the outset, of a number of territories, particularly colleagues in France and in Spain, who've run multi-day, you know, kind of Fête du Cinéma or Fiesta de Cine in Spain, you know. And we're not yet. We're going to walk before we can run. But we're not at the stage yet where we're thinking about multi-day events. But clearly, you know, those those colleagues in those territories have proven that they can be a very, very valuable additional part of the, the film calendar, as it were. Yeah, it seems like a, a great way to change the narrative that A, you know, remember why you love the cinema and B, like, no, there is product now. <laughs> you can come back in a little bit and see you know, X, Y, Z. How, how many other markets, how many uh, in the EU did National Cinema Day this year? Well, interestingly enough, in a number of territories, we can't count them as National Cinema Days because the national authorities uh, don't agree that cinema should agree on price. But as it happens on the same day, all cinema companies do that special. But by and large, I think we have about 15 countries who do it over our territories, you know, that we have data for anyway from last year. So, you know, Phil mentioned France and Spain, where it's been a tradition for years now. Last year, the Fête du Cinéma was actually as successful as the pre-pandemic editions, which was, you know, extremely encouraging. The Fiesta del Cine, they just had basically uh, the last couple of, you know, they just had an edition a couple of weeks ago and same, extremely successful. And for those who did it for the first time, we had Germany. Germany last year, so Kinofest, where interestingly enough, for years, both distributors and cinemas tried to launch it, but they thought it was too challenging to pick the right films. And somehow they managed to agree and say, this is something we must do. And the results were so good that they're doing it again next year. So in September, we also had the Netherlands who did it for the first time and same, they are going to do it again this year. So, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing like once you manage to put it off, 
it's successful and you just want to do it again. And as Phil mentioned, you can't underestimate the power of the cinema days, you know, when it comes to putting cinemas back on people's radar. You know, people who have forgotten what it was like to go and enjoy a film on the big screen. And I think, you know, this is literally where, yeah, the power lies with these cinema days. It's great that these are things that markets maybe have wanted to do, but never really kind of, they needed some sort of external circumstance to really push the parties involved to make something happen. Another example where that's going on in cinema, though kind of completely separate, is sustainability. It's something that cinemas have been obviously like talking about and, and, and figuring out ways to be more sustainable over the years. And now there's incoming legislation where it's you, you kind of you know, the talks, the clock's ticking on that. I know that's a big part of your programming this year at Cine Europe. Could you give kind of a, a top level overview maybe for, you know, some of our, our listeners over here and in, uh, on the other side of the Atlantic who maybe aren't familiar with, A, what's going to be required of you and then what the general response is? So I'll jump in on this probably because in the UK, we made sustainability the theme of our annual conference a couple of months ago. So this is something on which we've kind of looked closely at. And, and it's not, to be perfectly honest, you'll understand this, a, a, a new topic for anyone, but it's taken on a, a renewed importance and a renewed relevance given the increasing energy costs that all of us have seen post the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But also, as you say, because whether you're part of the EU or not, you are seeing increasing levels of of regulation and legislation around these things. So, so typically those tend to be pieces of legislation around waste management and recycling. They tend to be pieces of legislation around energy efficiency, particularly for new builds and for particular pieces of equipment. But I think, you know, we're very keen, and I, I probably speak for, you know, most colleagues that I've spoken to across Europe, is not to be seen to be kind of dragged to this by legislation and regulation unwillingly. I think there's a recognition that cinema has almost a unique ability, unique ability to, to embrace and communicate these issues. We're recognising, I think, that not solely, but particularly amongst younger audiences, there's now an increasing demand and expectation that the people they do business with take these issues seriously. We're certainly seeing at a time when, and it's probably a, a separate conversation, but a time when the challenges around recruiting and retaining staff are as acute as ever, that young people who are thinking of working in the cinema sector are asking questions about what the sector is doing in these areas. And we're also seeing, you know, and this is absolutely understood, pressure from brands and partners who might want to work with the industry to understand what is the sector's take on these things, what are the concrete actions the sector are taking on these things, and what is the future vision for the industry. So UNIC has, for the last few years, worked with colleagues at Coca-Cola and key colleagues at a number of the major European cinema operators with a group called the Circular Economy Group, which is around, you know, better ways of managing waste, better ways of dealing with issues of packaging, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there are, you know, and we, we certainly found this just on a UK basis with our conference in March. There are, there are a huge number of examples of good practice, but what there probably isn't is consistency. And what there probably isn't is a structure into which people who want to find out more can easily you know, find their way, to be perfectly honest. So I think what we are seeing is really just, in most cases, not in the early steps of action in this. And what we need to do, whether on a Europe-wide basis or on a national basis, and I know a number of colleagues 
running national association like ours or in a similar place. It's just starting to bring some, some kind of order and structure to these things because we clearly want to be able to present a, an honest face for the industry, but a positive face for the industry. That's, you know, useful to us in a number of ways, not least in our engagement with government, because there are only certain things the industry can do to improve performance here. And there are some things which require investment. There are some things which require sensible legislation or regulation. And so being seen to be a proactive partner of government, I think, whether it's at the, the commission level or at the national level, is hugely important for us. Yeah, the feature we have running in this issue, uh, the interview with Nordisk Film Cinema, is uh, the gentleman went over all they're doing, which is, I mean, a very large amount of attention being paid to sustainability for many years. It's not like these things weren't happening already or it wasn't a subject. It feels kind of just, it's a little bit of getting everyone on the same page as you know, just to kind of, not a starting point, but to take things kind of to the next level. It is. And it's also, it's also finding an approach which recognizes that people have different levels of resource to bring towards this. And I'm not talking solely or even mainly about finance. I'm talking about, you know, kind of staffing resource. I'm talking about, you know, bandwidth within the company. I mean, you know, as a national association for the UK, and this is certainly true for the vast majority of other European national associations, by far the largest proportion of our constituency are very small cinemas, you know, where there, there is, you know, probably not the, they would certainly say no spare staff resource, but I would certainly say not the staff resource, which is necessarily available to devote itself to these issues in the way that those companies might like to. So aside from sustainability and aside from looking at the upcoming slate and maybe aside from wondering if Tom Cruise is going to pop out from behind a trade show booth somewhere, what are the major subjects that you are expecting to be talked about here at Cine Europe? What are the major issues and, and concerns and opportunities that exhibitors are curious about this year? So let me pick one and then, and then Laura can pick more. I mean, mine would be broadly the film slates. And it's not a numbers game. It's not about, you know, we, you know, we currently have 300 films being released. We need 400 or 500. It's about the diversity of the film slate. And it's about the, the audience friendliness of the film slate. You know, what we're seeing in a number of European territories, uh, our audiences have returned or are returning, but there are particular audiences, you know, and it's not a, there's not a general picture across Europe. It varies from territory to territory. There, there are some audiences which are felt to be to have been or to be underserved. So it is around, you know, ensuring that within, it's a horrible phrase, but I'm going to use it, within the content mix, there are films which appeal to the broadest range of audiences. And that's looking not just to our traditional partners at the major US studios and the independent distributors, but of course, you know, in the last six to nine months, we've welcomed the moves by the likes of Amazon and Apple. And it's not been a more recent thing, but, you know, certainly the emergence of A24 as an increasingly important force in terms of providing films for cinemas which, you know, arguably are not necessarily being supported in the way they were pre-COVID by some of the major players. So for me, at least, I think, you know, it's that recognition that the momentum is building and certainly the appetite for audiences to watch films on the big screen has returned, if it ever went away. But it's about how we meet that with as broad and diverse a range of films as possible. Yeah, sounds like an extension of the conversation around local cinema, the kind of you see in a new way, the demand is there for all sorts of different types of cinema for all different demographics. And now, like you said, it's keeping that momentum going and not just going back 
to the same old, you know, studio temples on all the screens. And And I think it's another topic that's going to be discussed quite a lot at Cine Europe. You know, it's what do we want to give to audiences, you know, what they want to experience and how do we make sure that we have something out there for everyone, not just in terms of content, but in terms of the experience itself. Uh, and, you know, some of, you know, the audiences, it will be all about, oh, I want the biggest screen and I want the loudest sound and I want to have, you know, the biggest, you know, kind of popcorn or whatever. But then for other people, it'd be very different. They want to have a cozy atmosphere. They want to have a very comfortable seat. They want to have a glass of wine. I think we just need to make sure that basically all the diversity of cinemas that we have across Europe, which we're very proud of, basically can continue again to serve absolutely everyone. And this is absolutely key. You know, it's about the content and it's about the experience. And if you have the two, then you're able to bring people in. Uh, and that's what we want to continue doing. Yeah, it's a diversity of experiences, a diversity of price points. I mean, we want to make sure that, that cinemas remains being the democratizing art form that it is. And that's an interesting point, actually, not to spoil anyone, because uh, we are going to publish our annual uh, report during Cine Europe when we look at very different uh, data points. And one of them is focusing on ticket price, because you know that very often cinemas are being told, well, it's way too expensive. You know, how can you sell tickets at that price? Actually, when you start looking at the data, it's not true. You can just see that the cinema ticket has barely increased over the past few years and certainly not at the rate of inflation, even though at the same time, cinemas have, been, you know, have faced increased costs of operations. So it still remains the most affordable out-of-home activity that you can enjoy on your own with your family or with your friends. So I think that is something that we you know, need to continue banging on about basically as mentioned the annual report will talk about you know we'll talk about ticket price we'll talk about the national cinema day so everything you want to find out about it it's all in there covering each different country and how everybody does it local content as well because of course covering the diversity of territories we cover we have to talk about the strength and the need for strong local content. We'll talk about audiences' behaviors, who's coming back and why, you know, what differences do we have between territories? And then, you know, we also talk, of course, about the work we do here in Brussels with the European Commission, the European Parliament and Council, just to make sure that the voice of cinema operators is heard loud and clear. This has been the Box Office Podcast, the first episode in our Cine Europe series, sponsored by Ice Theatres and Christy. Please visit them at Cine Europe. Christy is at MR134 and Ice is at booth 107. Uh, so thanks to both of them. And also, of course, thanks to Sean Robbins, Jesse Rifkin, our producer, Chad Kennerk, and the entire team at Report Edit Podcast. The Box Office Podcast is co-produced by Box Office Pro, the Box Office company and record edit podcasts we're out every thursday tune back in next week where we will be hearing from rush fisher uh, boots on the ground perspective of cine europe 2023 please uh, like and subscribe and rate if you've enjoyed what you've been hearing and if you did not then don't have a great day <laughs>